Part one looked at what we know about Athelthrith's life and what happened in the decades right after her death. Born a princess of East Anglia in the early 7th century, she was married to a nobleman, widowed, and went on to become the Queen of Northumbria. She refused to consummate her two marriages and entered into the monastic life, becoming the Abbess of Ely in 670 and serving for seven years until her death from the plague. Sixteen years after she died, her body had not decomposed. She was transferred into a new marble coffin, which was miraculously the right size for her. Usually, a historical biography takes into account what happened during someone's life, from their birth until their death. The word biography comes from the ancient Greek, bios, life, plus grapho, to write. It's difficult to fit many early English saints into this genre, as sainthood by definition is something that happens after death, when miracles are reported and a cult is fostered by a church or a local community. The lives of many figures who feature in Alfgif Who are not well documented in sources from when they were alive, but new stories about them emerged in the sources many years after their deaths. This is not only the case with saints like Hild and Ianswith, but also women who became the subjects of retrospective scandals and controversies, like Queen Iadber and Queen Alfgifu. When dealing with early medieval history, biography necessarily becomes not just about life, but also legacy. While Athelbris' life is fairly well documented through Bede's ecclesiastical history, her posthumous legacy is so extensive that I've had to write a part two to explore it. The Liber Eliensis, or Book of Ely, compiled by a monk in the early 12th century, elaborates on Athelbris' life and her legacy in some detail using older source material. Looking at how Athelthrith was regarded in the centuries after her death reveals a lot about those who wish to remember her and keep her legacy alive. Most importantly, it gives us an opportunity to think about the many female relatives of Athelthrith, sisters, half-sisters, nieces and great-nieces, who became involved and implicated in her sainthood. In the century after her death, she was remembered by Bede primarily for her virginity and incorruptible body. But by the 12th century, she had also become a warrior saint, a symbol of protection and resistance against Vikings and Norman invaders. Part 1 touched upon the translation of Athelthrith's body from her wooden coffin to a marble one, 16 years after her death, how she was found to have not decomposed, and her doctor's testimony that her wounds had healed. It is worth refocusing this incident on the woman who decided to have Athelthrith reburied, her sister, Siaxpur. Siaxpur's life shared some features of that of her sister. She was also a queen, having been married to King Eorkenbert of Kent, and she became abbess of Ely in widowhood after her sister died. Unlike Athelthrith, she was not a virgin. Evidence suggests she had two sons who became kings of Kent, and two daughters who became saints, which is probably why she receives considerably less praise from Bede. She was also not a reluctant queen like Athelthrith, and sources point to her acting as queen regent for her sons Egbert and Hlothia, though this political experience would have set her in good stead for managing the monastery at Ely. 
Adelthrith was not the first of her sisters to have her body translated to a new resting place and found to be in perfect condition. Adelthrith and Siaxbeth's sister Athelbur and their half-sister Seathrith had both become nuns and then abbesses at Farmoutier-en-Brie. Bede tells us that seven years after Athelbur's death in 664, her body was moved and found to be incorrupt. Siaxbeth's daughter, Jorkengurta, was also a nun at Farmoutier and may have written to her mother to tell her of this miracle. The incident likely provided the inspiration for Siaxbeth's translation of Athelthrith and the reports of her miraculous incorruption. This action should not be underestimated as an astute political move by Siaxbeth as abbess of Ely. This miracle cemented Athelthrith's saintly reputation and led to the development of her cult, which endured for centuries. Fostering saints' cults could be a huge boon for monastic sites, earning them a prestigious reputation and establishing them as important pilgrimage sites. Siaxbeth may have also been considering her own posthumous reputation and that of her family. The move led to her becoming part of a group of saintly sisters, which eventually extended to saintly nieces and granddaughters. Saints' cults must be fostered, and these female familial networks loom large in Athelthrith's legacy at Ely. There is evidence that Siaxbeth's other daughter, Jormunhild, succeeded Siaxbeth as abbess at Ely in widowhood after the death of her husband, King Wulfira of Mercia. It is likely that during this period, the cult of St. Ethelthrith of Ely began to expand within Mercia, with two new foundations set up dedicated to Athelthrith in Lindsay in modern Lincolnshire. Bede tells us that days after her death, Eormenhild's body did not putrefy, but gave off a sweet smell. Eormenhild's daughter, Werber, was also reputedly an important religious figure in Mercia, heavily involved in Ely and she was apparently put in charge of Mercian religious houses by her uncle, King Ethelred. This may have also encouraged the growth of her great-aunt's cult. Werber became a saint herself, and she was the subject of yet another miracle story involving her body being found not to have decayed when being translated to a new resting place. By the early 10th century, monasteries in general were in decline due to sustained Viking attacks. According to Alfhelm, a priest at Ely writing in the 10th century, the Vikings attacked Ely and dispersed Athelfrith's cult in the late 9th century. This doesn't seem to have had a long-lasting impact, and the shrine survived the Viking looting. By the mid-10th century, a community of married priests was again active in promoting her cult. Bishop Athelwold of Winchester was a leading figure in revitalising monasticism in the Benedictine tradition in the second half of the 10th century, and he took a particular interest in Athelthrith's cult. Athelwold was interested in Bede's view of the 7th century church, which could be seen as a kind of golden age of monasticism. He refounded Ely in about 970, expelling the married priests who were maintaining Athelthrith's cult and replacing them with Benedictine monks. Athelthrith's portrait and her saint's day on the 23rd of June is included in the lavishly decorated benedictional belonging to Athelwold, 
with an inscription stressing her chastity and her intact body in life and incorruptible body in death. The virginal and incorruptible Athelthrith was the perfect figure to symbolise the displacement of the unchaste priests at Ely in favour of Benedictine monastic custodians, and Athelthrith's inviolate body was the perfect metaphor for the endurance of the monastery of Ely through Viking raids. But this posed a problem for Athelwald and the new community. It was common to display saints' relics in order for them to be seen and to be worshipped by pilgrims. However, removing Athelthrith from her tomb hundreds of years after her burial and putting her remains on display could have risked shattering her reputation as incorrupt. To solve this problem, Athelwald made the white marble sarcophagus itself the focal point of her shrine, holding a ceremony in which her coffin was brought into the church. This emphasis on her entombment created yet another layer of Athelthrith's impenetrability. It was probably at this time that miracles were first recorded, warning of the dire consequences of trying to open Athelthrith's tomb. The Liber Eliensis, using Alfhelm's earlier text, records that when the Vikings plundered Ely, one fierce raider attacked Athelthrith's tomb with an axe, hoping that there would be treasure inside. As soon as he had chipped off enough marble to create a small window into the tomb, he went blind and then he dropped dead. When the priests who had been dispersed by the Vikings returned eight years later, Alfhelm witnessed one of them poke Athelthrith's body through the hole made by the Viking with a stalk of fennel to try and see if she remained incorrupt. Finding that she was, he then attached a lit candle to a stick and poked this inside to see better, but as soon as he did this he went blind. The candle fell inside the tomb and kept burning without setting her burial clothes alight. The blinded priest then pulled her undamaged clothes away from her body with a sharpened stick and cut at them with a knife, and his companions took hold of the cloth. A tug of war began between the men and the coffin, and Athelbris's clothes were wrenched back into the coffin by a mysterious force back through the hole. In the following days, the text says, the priest's entire family were killed by a plague, and his offending companions either died or went mad. Alfhelm himself, a witness to these events, became paralysed, and only regained his health when his parents took gifts to Athelthrith's tomb. The story of these men poking phallic objects through the hole in her coffin, removing and tearing at her clothes, is not a subtle metaphor for Athelthrith's preservation of her virginity. Nevertheless, these miracles justify the continued decision of the Abbot of Ely not to allow anyone to open or look inside Athelthrith's tomb under any circumstances, a decision that enabled the monks of Ely to continue her reputation as incorrupt. The relics of two other abbesses of Ely, Athelthrith's sister Siaxbur and her niece Jormenhild, were put beside her, as well as another incorrupt virgin saint, Whitbur, whose body was stolen from another monastery, and the claim was made that she was Athelthrith's other sister. This created a shrine not just to Athelthrith, but to a family of royal women associated with saintliness and incorruption. 
The new abbot of Ely had gold and silver jewel-encrusted statues of these four women made to display at the shrine. In the years after the Norman conquest of 1066, the leader of an anti-Norman rebellion called Herowood the Wake made Ely his base, which led to it being besieged. During this time, St Athelthrith was transformed again into a symbol of resistance and protection. Rebels who joined Hereward would have to swear an oath to the cause on her tomb. The Liber Eliensis records miracles that demonstrate her continuing in this role in the decades after the Norman Conquest. One particular incident shows Athelthrith not only to be a protector of Ely, but as an avenging assassin accompanied by her sisters. When a Norman noble called Gervais was particularly harsh in his treatment of Ely, condemning or imprisoning anyone who spoke against him, quote, St. Athelthrith appeared in the form of an abbess with a pastoral staff, along with her two sisters, and stood before him just like an angry woman, and reviled him in a terrifying manner as follows. Are you the man who has been so often harassing my people, the people whose patroness I am, holding me in contempt? And have you not yet desisted from disturbing the peace of my church? What you shall have then as your reward is this, that others shall learn through you not to harass the household of Christ. And she lifted the staff which she was carrying and implanted its point heavily in the region of his heart, as if to pierce him through. Then her sisters, St. Whitbur and St. Siaxbur, wounded him with the hard points of their staves. Gervais, to be sure, with his terrible groaning and horrible screaming, disturbed the whole of his household as they lay round about him. In the hearing of them all, he said, Lady, have mercy! Lady, have mercy! On hearing this, the servants came running and inquired the reason for his distress. There was a noise round about Gervais as he lay there, and he said to them, Do you not see St. Athelthrith going away? How she pierced my chest with the sharp end of her staff, while her saintly sisters did likewise? And look, a second time she is returning to impale me, and now I shall die, since finally she has impaled me. And with these words, he breathed his last. End quote. Despite Athelthrith and her sisters becoming symbols for resistance against Norman oppression, the Normans themselves were keen to keep her cult alive at Ely. Norman abbots took over the monastery, and in 1106 the relics of the four women were moved to new shrines in the rebuilt choir, with Athelthrith placed in the position of honour. In the late 11th and early 12th centuries, many more texts about her and her miracles were produced, especially in the time of the first Bishop of Ely, Hervé, who is believed to have commissioned the Liber Eliensis. St. Athelthrith's cult continued to be promoted at Ely throughout the medieval period. About a dozen churches other than Ely were dedicated to her. A fair was held there in June to celebrate Athelthrith's feast day, where ribbons and lace necklaces that had touched the shrine were popular mementos. It is thought that the items sold at St. Athelthrith's fair, who is known as St. Audrey, gave rise to the term tawdry, a contraction of St. and Audrey, which describes something that is showy but cheap. That she would become best known for cheap necklaces is ironic given that, as explored in part one, wearing expensive necklaces weighed heavily on her conscience, and she believed this caused the bubonic tumour that was to kill her.
Since Athelbrush Shrine at Ely was finally destroyed during the dissolution of the monasteries. It is not known what state her body was in when it was finally removed from its coffin, but I'm sure that her and her sisters ensured those responsible met grisly ends. <laughs>